for the word. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, uh, if you would, um, there's a couple of verses I'd like you to get just to kind of prepare. One is in Genesis chapter 17, and uh, beginning in verse 1. And then a little later on, I want to share with you out of the book of Mark in chapter 10. So if you've, uh, if you've got, you know, a little placeholder, you might put it there. If you've got some of that blessed Bible string, you could put it in there and hold it. That's, uh, that's Mark's Gospel chapter 10. <clears throat> I've been preaching on the blood covenant because it is the relationship that God has with us. In fact, the entire Bible really is an a presentation of the blood covenant, although most Christians, and certainly people in the world, have no idea of what the blood covenant is, haven't heard it, um, and aren't familiar with it, but you know all the principles of it, but you have them in your mind sitting around in buckets and pieces. The blood covenant ties it all together and presents a big, glorious picture. And when that picture snaps in your spirit, you're going to jump and shout hallelujah because it's awesome. Praise the Lord. You know, it begins with the essential need of mankind, and that was to be reinstated to our purpose, fellowship and union with our Heavenly Father. And uh, we lost that, of course, through Adam's sin and his rebellion. And so we became incompatible with God. And so remaking man again, renewing and making him into a new creation in order to restore him to fellowship with himself, God used the blood covenant to do that. The blood covenant was the agency through which God reached out to mankind and drew him in, into that blood covenant, because that's where he would remake us and make us new so that we could be one. The blood covenant was simply two parties Two separate parties, and can you turn this down just a hair, because I'm getting a lot of echo. Um, two uh, parties coming together in an agreement that cost them their lives. In other words, when you entered the blood covenant, it wasn't like just taking a contract with an employer or agreeing with a company to paint your house, for example. Those are all forms of contracts. But the blood covenant was one that you entered and you didn't back out of. That's why it's called a blood covenant. Because what you were doing when you entered the blood covenant is you were providing the new creation that was about to take place with your life that would be combined with the life of the other party that would come together and both would lay their lives into that blood covenant from which there was no reversal, but out of which would come this third party, this new creation. So you can see why this is the perfect vehicle for remaking man so that he can be one with God. So God's trying to take us, we're separated from him, and bring us back into fellowship with him. The blood covenant's how that happens. The reason it works is because there's always a weaker party and a stronger party when there's a blood covenant. You see it in businesses, corporations, big corporation finds a weak, ailing corporation. They have a covenant, and the, the weaker one is made strong by the assets of the greater. So the strength of the greater party transforms and elevates the condition of the weaker party. In our case, um, in our case, the terms of the covenant laid out clearly from the beginning that God intended to elevate our estate and to transform us. 
when the blood covenant took place as a ceremony, there were a number of exchanges, and I've shared about them. There was the exchange of names. There was exchange of armor. There was an exchange of blood. And a number of little symbolic exchanges took place ceremonially because they were all meant to give a visual reference to those people that entered the blood covenant as to what they were actually doing. However, the first step in the blood covenant was the laying out of the terms of the covenant. Everybody say, come to terms. So when God introduces the blood covenant, as we're going to see in a minute, to Abraham, he does it by calling Abraham to come to terms. God introduces himself by introducing the terms of the blood covenant. So the terms of the blood covenant do a number of wonderful things for us. Um, your debt of sin is paid off by the wealth of God's grace. The deadness of your nature is replaced with a new birth as God's child through the life of Jesus by the agency of the Holy Spirit. His righteousness overshadows your corruption. The healing of his stripes when he rose from the dead, his wounds were healed. The healing of his wounds delivers you from disease and on and on. Whatever Jesus has and everything he has is abundant and overflowing. He is the Alpha and the Omega because there's no limit. There's no end to him. So if he's peace, if he's love, he's grace, all of those qualities, there's no way to measure them because they're unstoppable, as we were singing, unstoppable God. When I sing that, I think of his love, his grace, his mercy, his healing, unstoppable. You're never going to reach the end of it. So here is God with all his unstoppable virtues and values in his nature becoming one with us. And guess what? All of our deficits, all of our emptinesses, the emptiness of loneliness, the emptiness of corruption and, and of patterns of failure, of oppression and of sickness get filled up with whatever he has. Our debts are canceled out. And as a result of that, we are transformed into his image and likeness, and we become his child. So God relates to us through the terms of the blood covenant. So I want to talk about the terms of the covenant today. Now, the terms of the covenant, as I said before, is how God introduced himself to Abraham. We read in Genesis 15 and 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Listen to what God said. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. So Abraham must have been thinking, this is the almighty God. He just says, I will be your shield and I'm going to reward you in tremendous abundance. That sounds very broad and limitless and amazing. So God is laying out terms of a covenant. And the Lord did this over a period of years with Abraham. He met him on a couple different occasions. Each time he would open up more and more of what this blood covenant would mean. In the 17th chapter of Genesis, the Bible says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. There in the Hebrew it said, I am El Shaddai. I am the Lord who is Almighty, the All-Sufficient One. 
Walk before me. Now God is laying out some terms. He's laying out some requirements, some responsibilities. I am saying to you, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless so that I can make my covenant between me and you and might multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Let me just pause for a minute. He fell on his face because it was the living God. But if God, if I were Abram at that moment and God said, walk before me and be blameless, I'd fall on my face. Just thinking, how in the world am I going to manage being blameless? Because immediately I'm aware, in, and especially in the presence of God, of all my imperfections. Yet God is asking me, will you walk before me? Will you be blameless? And as a result of that, I can make my covenant between you and me. And he went on to say, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So right after he says, be blameless or be perfect, he makes this reassuring statement. And it's, again, is the terms of the covenant. My covenant is with you. So Abraham can't figure out how am I going to keep from stumbling and, and, and incurring blame. But God says his covenant is with me. So I believe somehow I'm going to be able to do this. My covenant is with you, God went on to say. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but I am changing your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. He's 99 years old, his wife's barren, they have no children. So, you know, God just loves to put impossible terms in front of us, doesn't he? Um, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. This just gets better and better. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. And your offspring after you, not just you, but your sons and their wives and your children and the generations of your descendants throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God calls Abraham to come to terms with him. He lays out these terms that are really fantastic but it's very obvious they're way above Abraham's reach. They're above his ability to fulfill. But God gets Abraham to, and here's the phrase again, come to terms. There are many people who are saved. They own Bibles, read them, believe a lot of what they read in there, claim to believe all of it, but have a hard time coming to terms. In terms of what coming to terms really means, they have a difficult time coming to terms with the promises of God. For example, when, when the devil kicks your door in with disease or poverty and trudges into the middle of your house and tries to beat you down and wrestle you to the ground and make you come to terms with death, come to terms with poverty, come to terms with sickness... The Lord is drawing and asking us to come to terms with Him. There are many believers that believe scriptures that apply to these needs, but they, 
in the moment when they really need it, they have a hard time coming to terms with the promises of God and end up coming to terms instead with the consequences of the world. But God requires Abraham to reach and believe these things that are impossible for him. But God is able to present the terms of the covenant to Abraham in a way that makes it possible. He presents them as promises rather than as threats and demands. Now let me tell you why this is so significant. God has every right to come to man and set the requirements of his demands. I need to bless you. In order to be blessed, this is what you must be and this is what you must do. And so God has every right to lay it out. If God had presented the terms of the covenant as threats or as demands, Abraham would have been hopelessly lost and the whole human race with him. But instead, God presents the terms of the covenant as promises. I promise you will do this. I promise you will walk before me. You will stand. You will not fall. And when you fall, you'll get back up again. And I am going to multiply you. I'm going to bless you. So you see what he's doing. God is luring Abraham into a place where he can actually come to terms with these things because he's receiving them with faith rather than having to go and see, figure out how he can work all this out. That he's believing God will work this out. Because God presents the blood covenant as a promise, Abraham simply believes God's going to work it out. And guess what? You know, Jesus is God working it out. Amen. Jesus is how God worked it out. Right. Can you say amen? Amen. So when you receive Jesus, that's how you come to terms with God. If you're a soul winner and you're talking to the unsaved, they're sitting there. If they believe there's a God, the first barrier they come up to is, I cannot be one with God. God's obviously perfect. If there's a God, he's perfect. And I've got some serious issues in my life. The first thing that unsaved people think is, I can't do that. I can't be that kind of person. But Jesus is God working it out. Hallelujah. In order to come to God, to come to terms with God, you embrace Jesus because you believe he worked it out on your behalf. Can you say amen? amen. So Jesus is, is coming to terms, is you coming to terms with God and inheriting the blood covenant. Everything that God said to Abraham in fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament in Galatians that, that, uh, that through Jesus Christ, we have become heirs with Abraham, joint heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham when he's confronted with the terms of the covenant, it says, against hope, as Abraham's 99, standing there, listening to God say these things to him, knowing his wife's barren, knowing he has no children, and he's kind of old, and his wife's kind of old. Against hope, Abraham believed. He believed on in hope, with the result that he became 
the father of many nations according to the pronouncement. There is the key to the blood covenant. Believe that you might become. Your becoming is tied to your believing in the terms of the blood covenant, not in your ability to go out and make all those things happen, but your ability to stand and believe that God has promised and that he will do it. So Abraham, the Bible says, believed against hope and he became. There's, there is the wonderful, pardon the expression, magic of the blood covenant is God is able to make us become the new creation by believing in what Jesus is. Jesus stepped out of that blood covenant as the one that represented God's promise and our responsibility. Jesus, the God-man, all God and all man, was the miraculous incarnation of God becoming man and fulfilling both sides of that covenant. Hallelujah. We, um, hallelujah, we come to terms with God through faith in the blood covenant. Now, I say this to Christians who feel, and, and you're correct, you have come to terms with God, but throughout our lifetime, we have many uh, um, times when we need to come to terms with God. The bills show up uh, in the middle of the week, and you got more bills than you have money in the bank, and you're feeling overwhelmed, you need to come to terms with God. You feel that need to come to terms. So throughout our life, we're constantly having to come to terms with God. We come to terms with God through faith in the blood covenant. If Christians don't know this, what they end up doing is they try to picture God loves me. They try to think on emotional level, does God love me? Then they start looking at, at uh, their shortcomings and they don't have a legal context for their faith. They don't have a solid basis for being able to say, of course God has provision for me. I know the blood covenant. He has made it available. Instead, if they don't know about the blood covenant, they try to project their faith, sort of like projecting it like a beam out into the darkness of space, hoping to hit God, hoping that I've, I've prayed enough, hoping I've read my Bible enough. And there's, by the way, nothing wrong. You should be reading, should be reading uh, and studying your Bible. Why should you pray? Why should you study your Bible? You should learn about the blood covenant. That's why you should read your Bible. Why should you pray? Because you're exercising the blood covenant. Everything now takes on true purpose when you start living it according to the blood covenant. Hallelujah. So we come to terms with God through faith in the blood covenant. Almost every preacher I know gets up and says, you need to have faith in God. But God did not just reveal himself and say, I'm God. He said, I'm God, walk before me. I'm cutting a blood covenant with you. You don't really know who I am right now, but we get into this covenant, you'll see me. I will reveal myself through the blood covenant. We didn't know what that God was love. We didn't know that he was faithful. We didn't know that he was willing to give his son. We didn't know what he could do for us until through the terms of the covenant, he made himself known. That's when we knew. In fact, it says, one of my favorites right here in Ezekiel 16, 62, 
I will establish my covenant with you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, <clears throat> most people say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. But the truth is, is that, uh, that believing is seeing. It's not the other way around. But believing is see it, seeing. If you believe the promise of God when He speaks it, then you'll receive it when you see it. But if you won't see it by faith when it's a promise, you'll never receive it when it's a manifestation. And I'll give you a perfect example of it. The Pharisees. The promise was manifest in front of them. The Word made flesh. I mean, these guys, were, these guys were supposed to be the heads of God's people, the keepers of the Word of God, the teachers of the Word of God. And here comes what the Word of God was all about. Here comes the, the living manifestation of the blood covenant, and they can't even see Him. They can't receive Him. And you know, if you really study the Gospels, you begin to realize that many of them who condemned him to death knew he was the Messiah. There are a number of statements and phrases in there that was very evident that some of them were aware that he had a mess the messianic mantle on his life. But faith is a, is a really funny thing. If you train yourself not to believe, you bend your attitude, bend your heart, and you stick your stubborn spirit in the ground and say, I will not believe when you hear the word and you take that position, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. If you don't move off of that position, when you do see it, you won't receive it. They didn't receive it, and they saw it right in front of them. And many of them saw and, and knew. Nicodemus snuck off at night and said, we know we know. So, you know, up on Mount Moriah, we've talked about it. Um, Abraham takes his son. When God says, take your son, sacrifice him to me, Mount Moriah was all about getting Abraham to come to terms with the blood covenant. He believed it, but now he needed to come to terms. And in our devotional time this week, Kathy and I um, just kind of stumbled into this, this conversation um, uh, about putting on the whole armor of God. And there's a no, there are a number of things in the Bible that are like this, but the Bible doesn't say have the whole armor of God. It says put on the whole armor of God. Many Christians have faith, but they don't walk in it. They don't use it. We have the armor of God, but we don't put it on. One of the, one of the, um, one of the mistakes in the faith movement, so to speak, was that we heard so much that, well, if you believe it, then you have it. But the reality is there's another step. If you know that God's given you something, if you believe it, yeah, you've got it. Now you've got to do it. If you know to do good and do it not, the Bible says it's sin. So you really are not getting the purpose of the armor Unless you are putting it on. And you've got to figure out what this putting on, the helmet of salvation, what does that mean? Well, to say the least, I'm not going to go in it. It's not part of my message. But it does involve something. It's not just running around saying, oh, I have the whole armor of God. That's like a silly soldier running around in a uniform on the parade field 
and uh, marching up and down while the battle's going on and just saying, well, praise God, I'm in the army. Well, praise God, I've got the, I've got the weapons, but he's not fighting. He's not doing anything. So there, there came a point in, in Abraham's life where he had to come to terms with the covenant. So God says, get your son up there. Did I keep my word? Did I give you a son? Yes, you did, God. And get him up there, and I want you to lay him on the altar, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. God had no intentions of letting Abraham kill Isaac. Now listen very carefully. He draws him up there to get him to come to terms with the covenant. He needs Abraham to act on the covenant. Abraham's made up his mind he's going to do it, but listen to how the book of Hebrews describes how Abraham went about it. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. That's the scripture that I just read you out of Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. And it shows us that it wasn't so much Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son as much as it was his faith that God would resurrect him back to life that God was looking for. Whenever the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is told, there's always one point. I don't care who the preacher teacher is. They all say the same thing. God was testing him to see if he was willing. And that silly conclusion has been used to the detriment oftentimes in people's lives. I mean a thousand times a thousand in people's lives who say, well, God's testing me. I need to give this up. And they see, they see their relationship with God as being a series of tests. Do I really love God more than love this? So I need to kill this. I need to sell that. I need to forsake this. I need to get away from that. And they all point back to Mount Moriah. They all said that the test of Abraham was to see, are you willing to give up your son? Don't you think God knew Abraham was willing? Do you think he really had to put him through that just so God could figure it out? you think God doesn't know what we're willing to do and aren't willing to do? What was it that Abraham needed to do up at Mount Moriah? It wasn't his willingness. It was bringing his mind to a place of faith. I believe God will raise him from the dead. God wasn't looking at the willingness. He was looking at the faith behind it because the faith is what brought God to terms with his own covenant. See, God will also come to terms with his covenant. If Abraham is believing that I will raise Isaac, I believe I will send my own son and I will raise him from the dead. Can you say amen? You see, this whole thing about coming to terms is about faith. It's, we always think in terms of just morality or am I doing a good job? Am I willing? But God is always looking for faith because without faith, 
It is impossible to please God, the scripture says. What do you think it, that verse means? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It means that you cannot work and function in the blood covenant if you're acting out of, I've got this, I can do that, I need to kill Isaac. No, you need to take another step and say, I'm willing to offer him up because I believe God's going to hand him right back to me. And of course, that's who Jesus was. Praise God. So Abraham's coming to terms with God was through faith. And that opened the door for God to send Jesus the fulfillment of those terms. And he satisfies both man's side and God's side of the blood covenant. So Jesus, who is he? Jesus is God offering you the ability to come to terms with him. We always tell people, well, God sent his son so that you can be saved. But that's an abstract thought. It's very hard for even Christians to get their mind about, well, how does that work exactly? How was Jesus coming and dying? How did that affect me being able to be one with God? Why, if God wants me to be one with him, why didn't he just hang out with me and take me as I am? And, and you know, that's the modern concept of what being saved is. Oh, God loves me and, and he wants to hang out with me. And uh, Jesus was just there kind of as an example that God likes me and wants to hang out with me. Foolishness, shallowness, is, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. There was actually a covenant being worked out where Jesus became you, took your place. And what God's wanting from you is for you to believe in that blood covenant. Well, I kind of want to wrap this up, and I told you that I want to share something out of Mark chapter 10. And before I do, I'd kind of like to pose a question. What does it really mean to come to terms? We've all heard the phrase in our life. Usually, it's something like, well, how's, how's sister so-and-so doing since her husband passed away? Well, she's coming to terms with it. Uh, how, how is so-and-so doing since they've gotten that report from the doctor? Well, they're coming to terms with it. Coming to terms simply means that you come to terms with life, and it's basically settling for conditions that impact you. Coming to terms is settling conditions that have an impact on you. Stress, I've come to terms with stress, I need this medication. Apparently, I've come to terms with it, that's where I'm at. Lack, well, this is where I'm at in life, probably never gonna have more money than this, I'm coming to terms with lack. Sadness, people come to terms with depression, they come to terms with sadness, because they don't know how to rise above it, they don't know how to break out of it. I've been sad for 20 years. I don't know how to stop being sad. They come to terms with it. It's settling for conditions that impact your life. Illness. People come to terms with illness. You know, stop fighting it. Nothing can be done. Come to terms with it. Uh, death. People come to terms with death. So you get the idea of what the term, phrase, coming to terms means. Unfortunately, the sad reality is, the sad inescapable reality is that coming to terms with life doesn't solve anything. It's just a fatal resignation that this is what, the way it is. And as bad as it is, I don't want to add stress to it, so I'm going to come to terms with it. I'll be better off. Once I just settle in, 
all of us who are aging come to terms with certain things. Oh, why fight it? Fight it. Don't come to terms with it. Fight it. It will reverse the process. So unfortunately, in coming to terms with life is really nothing more than succumbing to life's circumstances because there's no victory in it. There's no power to change. But coming to terms with God, that's what the blood covenant was. In Christ, we're not coming to terms with life. We're coming to terms with God. Hallelujah. Coming to terms with God is offering us the awesome privilege of all that Jesus came to give us instead of settling for the consequences of life. Now, I told you to turn to Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 46. I want to read a few verses down. And with this example, this wonderful example of a man who had every reason to come to terms with the fatal consequences of life when Jesus the living terms of the covenant came, he jumped at it. And we'll read and find out who he is and what happened. Verse 46. They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Many scolded him to get him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he kept repeating it. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up. He's calling you. He threw off his cloak, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man replied, Rabbi, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus on the road. There are so many things. I could just put a clip on this and pick this up and preach this next week. This story is pregnant, but there are some things pertaining to coming to terms in this thing that you need to see. First off, he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by and he starts shouting out. What does he shout? Somebody tell me. Son of David. Son of David. He didn't say Jesus of Nazareth only. He said Jesus... Son of David, do you realize that he was invoking the blood covenant? He was calling on the blood covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the blood covenant through the lineage of David. Any good Hebrew in those days would have known that. That calling him the son of David is stating your faith in the blood covenant. So he is saying, I know who you are. You are the promised Savior. You are the Son of David who is to come. Have mercy on me. And he won't shut up when they try to shut him up. 
he won't be stopped. He just keeps shouting. The next thing to see is the Bible says Jesus stopped. The King James says Jesus stood still. You want to you make Jesus stand still? You think Jesus is too busy for you? You want to make Jesus stop where he's going, what he's doing? Jesus stopped and turned around and said, call him over here. Why did Jesus stop? He had a throng of people pulling at him. Jesus, Jesus. I'm sure they're all shouting Jesus. Jesus, my little girl. Jesus, my son. Jesus, my wife. Jesus, my puppy. But through the crowd he hears, son of David. He said, call that guy. You see where I'm going with this? Son of David, have mercy on me. Why would he say have mercy on me? Because he knows according to the blood covenant that the son of David has to have mercy on him. He knows according to the blood covenant that God has promised mercy through the son of David. It is a provision of the blood covenant. He knows that the God that made that covenant cannot lie. See, he knows what Christians ought to know. Are you listening to me? And so when he comes to Jesus, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, what do you want? Can you imagine? You're standing before the I am. This is the guy that spoke to Moses in the wilderness when Moses said, who are you? He said, I am that I am. The, the Bible says, Jesus is the I am made flesh. And he stands before blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is, has just come up. And Jesus stands there and says, what do you want? Wow. What do you want? What do you want? The guy immediately knows what he wants. And he asks him straight up, no equivocation, straight up, Lord, now listen to me. Rabbi, let me see again. The King James, I think, says he restored his sight. I don't know if any of you are catching this, but in the Gospel of John chapter 9, where Jesus healed a blind man, the Bible says that blind man was born blind. This guy had fallen into a condition, and I bet he was fighting. However many years he had been blind, this guy used to see. Something happened to him, and he was probably struggling, trying to avoid coming to terms with it. And maybe by the time he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was walking by, he may have been just about ready to succumb to that death sentence of blindness. There's nothing to be done for me until he hears, who is that? That's Jesus of Nazareth coming by. All of a sudden, like the cloak that he flung aside. Now, what blind man throws his cloak aside, being blind, and jumps up and runs in the direction of the voice of Jesus. A guy who figures he's going to be able to find it with his own two good healed eyes after the healing takes place. Blind people don't get up and leave their stuff behind. They feel around for it. Get that cloak, make sure they've got it because they don't expect to see. Are you listening to me? Y'all are pretty Quiet. Did I make a mistake of stumbling into the Episcopal church this morning? <laughs> so at any rate, praise God, Rabbi, that I might see again. There's the blood covenant. There it is right there. I don't want to come to terms with my blindness. 
I've come to you to come to terms with my healing. I've come to Jesus to come to terms with the blessing, with the provision, with the new creation, with the promises of God. You see how you face life as you come to terms with the blood covenant. Everything that faces you in life, drag that thing onto the altar of the blood covenant and make it come to terms with the promises of God. Somebody say amen. amen. That's what the blood covenant is all about. It's making the circumstances of life come to terms with the word, the promise of God. This one final comment about the story of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus answers him and says, Go, your faith has healed you. Everyone says, Oh, I wish that I could believe. If I could see Jesus, I would believe. It was not faith in Jesus in the sense that we think about faith in Jesus. It was faith in the blood covenant that Bartimaeus was acting upon. When he saw Jesus, he hope that the blood covenant was real jumped up in him. And Jesus said, that faith just got you your healing. All right, close your Bible. Stand with me this morning.